We're going we're gonna, to, uh, we have a dynamite panel this morning. This is a absolutely crucial issue for the coming generation of Texans. We're going to have twice as many people in this state in the next 50 years, and yet we have already given permission for more water to be withdrawn from our rivers than is actually in them. So even if we didn't have a drought, we've got a, a major problem on our hands, and these people that are here this morning have been right in the middle of it, and it's going to be a great panel. So starting at the far end, let me introduce you to uh, Professor Wendy Jepson from A&M. She got her PhD from the University of California at Los Angeles. She is a geographer. Uh, she uh, specializes in environmental justice and political ecology. She's done a lot of research uh, funded by the NSF, National Science Foundation, in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Next to her is Representative Eddie Lucio, who's a second-generation Texas legislator. He's got uh, two degrees from the University of Texas. He's an attorney in Brownsville. He's vice chairman of the Calendars Committee in the Texas House of Representatives, which is a major influential committee. He serves on the Natural Resources Committee. He has sponsored legislation to increase uh, energy efficiency in state buildings. And uh, he's, uh, he's been made a real mark in the legislature for his bi bipartisan efforts to help the people in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Next to him is Senator Charles Perry. Senator Perry represents the largest senatorial district in the state, 51 counties. His entire family are graduates of Texas Tech University, Red Raiders. Uh, he has, uh, in, his, in the short time that he has been in the Senate, He's passed over 60 bills. He's the chairman of the Senate Ag, Water, and uh, Committee and uh, has, has quickly made a mark as one of the most influential Senate leaders with respect to natural resources. Laura Huffman is the state director of the Nature Conservancy. She has a presence in the Nature Conservancy uh, across the United States as the founder of its uh, Resilient Cities program. She serves on the board of the Austin Ballet. She was a former assistant city manager in Austin where she was responsible for the city's water, water department and issues. And she also had pretty much the same role in the city of San Marcos. Finally, uh, Representative Laurel Lyle Larson is from San Antonio. Uh, Representative Larson is as quickly also made a, a mark in the, in the legislature. He started his career as elected official as the San Antonio City Councilman. He served as a commissioner in Bear County. He's sponsored a very significant pieces of water legislation in the House. And I might tell you that uh, one of the things that I appreciate most about him is that he sponsored the bill in the last session which guaranteed permanent funding from your, the taxes you pay on sporting goods, sales taxes, to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department for State Parks. So we appreciate that, Representative sure. Larson. So, so in the last session, that is in, um, in 2013, we were coming out of probably the worst drought in our history. You guys led efforts to uh, set up a $2 billion loan fund for water infrastructure across the state. The citizens of the state passed it, passed it overwhelmingly in a constitutional amendment. Then it started raining. In, the, in this most recent session, I'd, I'd sort of be interested, uh, starting with you, Senator Perry, as to kind of what your mindset was with respect to water as, as the session began and what you think you accomplished this time. Yeah, it was a pretty good, pretty good session. can't always be the big bill of the session that you look back on, but... Uh, our job through that committee, and I recognized it early on, the worst thing that can happen to the water plan and the water initiatives is it rains. Because Texas has a history of shelving that discussion the minute it rains. So part of that was just to continue to keep that at the priority level it should be. We did pass some significant legislation we'll talk about a little bit later on probably. Uh, secondly is recognize stakeholders, that there's not one group of stakeholders that are more important or have more interest in a particular water issue, that we always got to keep all of the parties at the table and continue to have that discussion ongoing. Um, there's no, no more important as a producer of ag versus a municipality that needs water for livelihood. So that recognition and continuing to have those people at the table 
engaged was kind of what I had hoped to hoped to achieve. And I think we look back and all the stakeholder groups came together on some level. We did produce significant legislation that had been discussion for 30 years, aquifer storage recovery and some of those initiatives that represented Law and uh, Larson and I worked through. And then desal, you know, everybody always that you mean, well, why aren't we using the Gulf water? Well, now we can do that. So lots of good initiatives were actually moved forward. They're, they're small on their face, but I think they have big ramifications going forward. Uh, Representative Lucio, you did pass a, an ocean desal bill. Would you talk to us a little bit about that and what, what, what you see in the future for desalination? Yes, sir. You know, desalination, since I came into the legislature, has been um, discussed and as a potential proposal to diversify our water supply. It's always been labeled as too expensive and um, something that you know, we're not going to be able to do now until it becomes more cost efficient. But uh, we don't have a lot of time to wait. And that cost efficiency is very largely dependent on our ability to be innovative through projects. We have to actually do the work, be innovative to create efficiencies. So what we wanted to do is have a predictable permitting process, streamlined permitting process, because the only thing that existed at the time to some extent or a large extent is permits for proposed ocean marine desalination plants were being run through models for you know, groundwater desal or other type of projects. And you know, obviously, it's quite different you know, when you ask for you know, uh, available models from the, from the Gulf, well, it's, it's endless. Right. <laughs> and so to go through that process um, was becoming more and more difficult. So we wanted to identify zones where permitting was you know, streamlined, certain miles away from the coast, and hopefully incentivize uh, folks to move forward with the desal project. Thank you. Representative Larson, you visited virtually every groundwater district and river authority in Texas in preparing yourself to engage in the water issue. How did you feel this session came out? We could have done a lot better. Obviously, like uh, Charles indicated, uh, you just try to move the ball forward. Uh, in desalination, uh, we did uh, pass a bill and we put money aside to allow the Water Development Board to expedite finding those highly productive bracket zones we've got in our state. Uh, and then once we do that, then we'll figure out the regulatory scheme on how we can move that water uh, into the population areas. Uh, the ASR bill, the aquifer storage and recovery bill, uh, we're able to simplify the regulatory scheme so folks hopefully will start capturing some of the water. January 1st through the end of July, we lost 29 million acre feet to the coastline. If you look at all the water and all that rainfall that we're experiencing this spring, I just saw opportunity, a lot of devastation, a lot of flooding was taking place. Other states don't let that water run to the coast without capturing at least part of it. If you look at uh, the, uh, the, the bays and estuaries, obviously we need to flush them, but uh, we don't need to flush them with that much water. And so that's a lesson to be learned that when the water does come, let's start capturing and start putting it underground. We will have another drought. We'll have a drought this century. We've had. A, a drought from seven to 10 years for every century for the last five centuries. And so it's not a matter if, it's gonna be when. And if we're gonna prepare our state, we need to deploy all the technology that we have available. Very similar to the folks in the 1950s, uh, they built 66% of our surface water capacity uh, based in the response. It's incumbent upon the leadership in Austin to respond in the same way with the drought of 2011 being the precursor for things to come. So uh, speaking of uh, losing water, the, I, I'm sure that many of you saw the article in the American Statesman that said that the communities around Austin in 2014 lost seven billion gallons of water just through leaking systems. Ms. Hoffman, what, what, what can we do to cause greater efficiency in conservation in our system? Well, there's so much that we can do. I think one thing we've got to recognize is there's not going to be a silver bullet in water. There's not going to be a silver bullet in terms of water supply, uh, any projects. All of that's going to take a lot of intricate thinking. And actually, one of the things that I think was really interesting that was happening during the legislative session was all of the decisions and planning that Texas Water Development Board was doing and figuring out how to spend and loan out that $2 billion. Because it, it's $2 billion that's going to turn into $27 billion. We're going to be spending that money for the next 20 years. And they were setting up all of the rules and the logic behind that money. 
What I think is so important about that is that 20% of that, a bare minimum of 20% of that funding has to go to conservation. Conservation is always gonna be the cheapest water supply out there. We're, the math, as you said at the beginning, doesn't work right now. When you look at population and available water, the math simply doesn't work for a state with 50 million people. So when I think about conservation and what utilities and cities have to be thinking about, water loss is a huge area where cities can go get water that is already in the system but not being used efficiently. We need to be looking at water losses in cities. We need to be looking at water losses in agriculture where 70% of all the water is used in Texas is used to grow food. All of that qualifies for the conservation funding that voters approved after the 2013 session. And I think more and more we need to be working with cities and with utilities to figure out how to package up a whole suite of activities in conservation, including water losses, so that we can institutionalize conservation into water projects. What I think was so elegant about what the state did in 2013 is we institutionalized conservation in the financing. Now we've got to institutionalize it in the projects. So the, 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 the origin of this discussion is that the Texas Water Plan, which comes out every five years, projects that a very large percentage of the water that we're going to need in 50 years <coughs> is going to come from conservation. And I know, Dr. Jepson, you've done some work on the Texas Water Plan and the planning process. Can you comment on that? things I, I think is important to recognize that the, that the projections that we have in the water plan don't address climate change and the ways in which climate change will affect the models for the future. So some have argued that climate change may affect the water availability between 5 and 15 percent. Some have even said up to 25 percent. So what we have I think is a great start. I think that the structure of the SWIFT and structure of the water plan as a governing tool is uh, the most effective way to do it for a state as large as Texas. I think as we move forward, however, we need to continually revise those models and take into account that we have to bend the curve. And what I'm talking about is the demand curve, mm -hmm. right? So um, the, if, you, if you look at the way the models are created in that plan, um, it's, it's about continually producing water. The, the underlying architecture of the Texas water plant is about producing more water. And I think that the conservation 20% is a good step forward, but I think we need to think more about than just conservation. We need to think about bending the curve, think about demand management um, in, in ways that are more systematic, not just sort of uh, scattershot projects here and there, but something more transformative. But what we see with the, the water plan is that it gets revised every five years. We have the opportunity to, in, to, to evolve uh, our water policy, and I think that is something uh, that was very smartly organized in the, in the most recent um, uh, plan. And the next one will come out in 2017, and so hopefully stakeholders can, can become more involved and we can uh, plan on uh, not just uh, demand management and bending the curve, but also include climate change as part of that model. You know, while we're on the subject of water planning, it's, uh, it's, it's not rocket science that in a state where we have 60 inches of rainfall on the eastern border and 25 inches here where growth is explosive that people would have been talking about moving water around the state for almost a century. I know that uh, Representative Larson and Senator Perry both uh, sponsored legislation in this session to create a, a grid for water management in Texas similar to the electrical grid. Could you talk a little bit about that? If you look at uh, what our, where our needs are and where the water is, we need more conveyance. We also need more interconnectivity. Uh, in an electric grid, we can understand uh, where we're having problems uh, with the, the power, and we move it through the grid uh, to solve that problem. We've eliminated the brownouts and the blackouts. The problem with a brownout or a blackout in water is it takes a long time. You can't just turn on a switch or switch something uh, in the nodal system and move move the power over there. It, it'll take you years to develop those sources. So as we develop these projects, and I think in some part the state has abdicated their role as far as uh, developing a, a system that connects all the different regions. And I've been critical of the water plan because of, of the issues of, of interconnectivity. We fight each other fiercely for water on these regional boundaries. And for us to develop large conveyance projects and interconnect all the small communities. So if Dallas is building a project, 
or San Antonio or San Angelo. Let's not forget those other communities that are in the area. It's all, right now, we don't have that cooperation, uh, especially if you're outside those regional lines. And so the, the grid will allow us uh, to develop a hydrovascular system that will move water throughout the state and, uh, and develop it uh, before the drought hits, whether it's coming from other states or Mexico, or whether it's uh, developing the desalination in the brackish areas or desalination along the coastline, uh, or, or dealing with the, the, uh, the groundwater that we have available and those very prolific aquifers moving that water. But let's make sure that it's all connected. That's what the grid would allow us. Senator, when I was a student at Texas Tech, they were talking about actually moving water from the Mississippi to, to the Panhandle. So are you, uh, are you in agreement with what uh, yeah, Representative said? I think, I think it, it raises that issue, and we're going to continue to have it. Um, economies are scale. We do these projects all around these cities, and as Lyle mentioned, they're not connected. Uh, we need to get smarter in what that would look like, understanding that there's brackish aquifers over in the West Texas area. That could be a direct resource for those people. But if we're going to do something on a massive scale, we've got to connect them together where it makes sense in diversification of inputs. You know, we're 95% dependent on rain. Everything we do, even the groundwater, ultimately is about rainfall. So uh, diversification of that input, be it from outside the state, be it from the Gulf. But as you do that, you've got right-of-ways already purchased. Why not take advantage of those with pipelines running up those right-of-ways? Why not find the most efficient use of connecting those? Keeping in mind, you're taking water from some area to a different area, and it's a business-directed decision on who owns the rights to those water rights. So you will always have that parameter to consider on the front end, can we buy it, can we move it? And that's what that water grid study, we, I think Lyle would agree, we didn't propose a grid, we said let's study the concept of how we could go about being an efficient use of our right-of-way access, make our transportation talk to the water grid study people and see if there's ways there, make our energy sector talk to our grid study, so to speak, and say can we can we, instead of flaring off gas, because the input cost of lifting that water is a huge barrier on a lot of levels, so let's get a coordinated, collaborative look at how we bring all those interests together and make it conjunctive to where they work together instead of work against each other. So, so why did that concept, which seems to make so much sense, draw opposition? I mean, who... who? We weren't clear, I, I think, and I think, truthfully, it came over to my area a little late for me to, to kind of consume it, and we had our sessions going. But that's what the interim process is about, I think, is to try to build a platform to have those discussions, to take all the demons or the imposed, self-imposed demons out of the room and talk about what would a potential water market, water grid, making, taking advantage of state resources, i.e. the energy on state lands and all those other things look like, and provide water to every corner of the state with the resources. The 2.7 billion acre feet of brackish water is undeniably going to be a major player in our water going forward. And it's currently probably sitting under some property owner's ability to get paid on that. So it's all that environment that we've got to make sure exists to be able to do it. So the lieutenant governor has issued some interim charges, and it sounds like that one of them at least would, would uh, uh, accommodate that kind of discussion. I would hope that we would have multiple discussions, outside-the-box discussions. We're not going to solve the 2,060, 40-million-plus population without having some outside-the-box Dr. Jepson, I know that a lot of your work has had, had to do with sort of the ad hoc water delivery and, and, and inadequate water quality along the lower Rio Grande Valley. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your work and what some of your findings have been? Thank you, yeah. So um, the work that I was doing was looking at communities, particularly in, in the lower Rio Grande Valley, where their, their water supply is provided by um, not necessarily municipal water supply um, uh, utilities, but by either uh, privately owned, investor owned, or water um, nonprofit water supply corporations. They're generally they're they're varied in size. They're generally small to small moderate sized um, utilities. And in many of these communities, um, while they do have water um, to their homes, uh, it's unreliable. It's not affordable, and it's inadequate in in uh, terms of quality. And so the work that I was doing was trying to evaluate and create a system. Uh, a measurement to assess household water security, essentially. And so that's what I did. Um, preliminary results, at least in the colonias communities where I work, 
uh, indicate that 55% of the households are water insecure. Um, a graduate student of mine did work in El Paso and 65% were water insecure. And so again, that means that the water was inadequate, unreliable, um, or was not affordable. And so what we've seen is um, responses, household responses is to go and purchase water. Uh, either water vending machines, which colloquially are, colloquially are called molinitos, um, but these are water vending machines, um, five gallon bottles, um, and that actually is an extraordinary cost for many of these families who live at or below the poverty level. And it's not just in the Rio Grande Valley, however. Um, in the recent legislative session, um, uh, Representative Wall put forth a bill, HB 2248, which was to deal with, uh, in his district, um, a uh, privately owned water supply company that had failed chronically in providing adequate, affordable, and reliable water. So um, while my research is on the border, these issues are throughout Texas, um, and they're even in you know, North Houston, South Houston, um, and in Central Texas as well. And so um, I think the, the work that I did in the Valley was, uh, allows us to, to identify and measure, because first we need to understand the scope and scale of the problem but I think that there are some solutions out there, and HB 2248 um, did not go through the Senate. It, I believe it died in, in um, committee, but that was a very interesting um, way to think about these privately owned companies, and what it provided for was for the PUC to revoke the license. So that if these um, uh, individual uh, utilities or water supply companies cannot provide adequate water, reliable water, and affordable water, that, that and in, in a long term, I believe the six-year framework, that, that the PUC had a mechanism for revoking um, their license to operate. And I think that that's certain, certainly something that needs to be on the table, because it's not just in the Valley, it's, it's throughout Texas. Representative Lucio, no, no one has been a more champion of the improving conditions along the river. What, what would your take on this be? I want to speak to conservation. You know, we talk about the state water plan in 2013, and the biggest bang for our buck, at least in South Texas, would be the conveyance system to get water from the river to the municipalities. We use irrigation districts um, to move that water. We don't have any significant amount of groundwater that we're producing, brackish or otherwise. It's only 60% efficient to get water from the river to the municipal suppliers. That means we lose 40% just in the conveyance system. Well, that conveyance system is owned and maintained by the irrigation districts. Well, the way the irrigation districts are set up, they don't have the revenue necessary to borrow from the Water Development Board uh, and repay those loans in order to upgrade their systems and be, make them more efficient. And so we're, you know, we have all these water rights, and if you were to place that scenario in any other part of the state and say, well, we're only getting 60% of our water because we lose 40% in the production of it, I think that there would be a greater level of concern. But you know, by and large, the reason we haven't figured out a way to solve that problem is water is inexpensive. It really is. Although it's increasing in price, it's still pretty affordable, relatively speaking. I, I was on a panel with a senator here a couple weeks ago. I pay more for my cell phones and iPad than I do for my water bill. Mm -hmm. And if you tell me which one is more critical to the quality of life <laughs> in my home, I would say water, <laughs> right. right? And so, in if we just want to be able to figure out how to truly uh, make use of that conservation set aside on, farm, on, on farming practices or through conveyance system in South Texas, those folks don't even have a way or a structure to borrow from the Water Development Board. That's interesting. Uh, and you know, our, some of our largest water suppliers outside of cities, which, which were mentioned, which are water supply corporations, uh, we have the largest one in the state in South Texas with a presence in my district. Uh, because of tax consequences, they can't, it's not affordable for them to borrow through the Water mm -hmm. Development Board. So yes, we've revolutionized this financing mechanism, but it, it's not suitable for, for everyone, especially some of the most important users in our state. Ms. Huffman, uh, uh, Representative Larson talked about the enormous amount of water that flowed through the system during the Memorial Day floods and, and mentioned that a lot of it would, you know, ended up in the Gulf of Mexico. Isn't it true that, you know, while the uh, intuitively capturing, you know, runoff and using it is, is, is going to be beneficial, don't we also need to make sure that, that we're supplying water to the basin estuaries, and how would we do that? 
Well, we have a couple of mechanisms already to supply water to the bays and estuaries. We've got in-stream flows legislation that the state passed. You know, Texas is one of the few states that actually has that kind of mechanism in place. Does it go far enough during times of drought? No. Uh, and so part of what we're looking at is could you use markets? Could you, and we're working with Andy and others on evaluating whether or not you could buy water rights that are either underutilized or not being utilized, could you make investments in efficiency uh, as a mechanism to free up water that's being uh, wasted and let that water stay in our rivers and streams and flow straight to the Gulf of Mexico? I do think that Representative Larson is making a good point and a different point, which is at times of really, really high volume flow, there is the ability to capture some of that water and store it and you will you will not negatively impact the bays and estuaries. And, and just another word about conservation, and this maybe even goes back to the water grid legislation, one of the things we're gonna have to get really good at in Texas is start combining all of these ideas into one. Part of the reason that bill was controversial is because there are people out there that, that believe that the state is only interested in building infrastructure to the exclusion of all other strategies when it comes to water. And then there are other, there's another camp that says, Conservation will get you all the way through the night on this issue. Well, neither of those two things are true. The math isn't available to say we can build our way out of this, but the math isn't available to say we can conserve our way out of this either. And so what, what we're advocating for is that we really integrate those concepts together. We, gotta, we, we can't think about conservation as you know, either a low-flow toilet program or a rate structure program or a demand-side program or a source water uh, protection program. It is all of those things. And Texas... I think Texas could lead the way in the country on how to redefine conservation. We need look no further than California to see what the bad conversation looks like. And in that same way, we've got to integrate groundwater and surface water. So part of going forward is we've got to take all these ideas that have been sitting uh, separately and we've got to combine them together. Seems to me that the linkage between groundwater and surface water is kind of the gorilla in the room in this issue. And Senator, I, you all made some, some progress with HB 200 in this session on groundwater, did you not? Yeah, HB 200 was uh, the DFC reform bill, if you will. It brought a different level of appeals process prior to that. DFCs are desired future conditions that groundwater districts have been charged to establish based on where they'd like to see their aquifer 50 years from now, 100 years from now, whatever that might be. Uh, but prior to this legislation, if there was a dispute over whether the DFC met scientific data or not, the, uh, the complainant, if you will, had, was forced to kind of stay in that boundary. It's kind of fox and chicken house. So we opened it up to where they could go through SOA for that. It did reaffirm that science, the best available science, should be the guide for DFCs. Um, and then it just uh, the uh, administrative side, the SOA side, and then science there. But it was really more of a stakeholder driven initiative because there was a feeling out there that the state, through water districts, were telling private landowners what they should do. That's not the way it was set up. Groundwater districts are locally elected boards so that the private landowners had that voice on a local level, but there was elements of it that they felt like they were not getting their day in court. So anytime you can expand the opportunity for a private landowner to feel like they're part of this process, it's a win. Because the day you start excluding them from it, the statewide water plan starts being assaulted and everything that we're trying to achieve is stonewalled or blocked. So Representative Lucio, do you see any um, um, pathway to a greater linkage between surface water and groundwater in Texas? You know, it, it, we have such an interesting system here in Texas. We say that the surface water is owned by the state, and we say the groundwater is owned by the private property owner. And, you know, I don't want to take away 100 plus years of prop private property rights, but um, they're very much interconnected. You know, we had a bill to define uh, or, or to try to identify confined and unconfined aquifers. And there are some areas that, you know, large drilling in, in those aquifers are going to directly impact the surface water, which is the state. How you reconcile those two things. Um, you know, and then you have the day case that says that if a groundwater conservation di districts regulate in a certain way, that's a taking of which they're owed a, a, a compensation for. And so it's really interesting. You know, we're, all of this is going to come to a head. Uh, conservation, um, you know, future water planning, diversification, uh, all, all these things are, are, are why water is going to be one of the top three issues here in our state moving forward. You know, we had an almost entirely new statewide elected leadership this session. 
uh, from the governor to various state agencies. And even the ones that have never had anything to do with water said water was their number one priority. <laughs> so the reason I love water is it's one of the few left bipartisan issues. Right. I mean, you can't poll Democrats or Republicans and they're going to say, well, you know, we should put more money or less money in water. It's just, it's just is what it is. Uh, you know, what I see moving forward is a, a and there is going to be a sense of urgency sooner than later is until we come together, we're always going to have this dire need that we're going to be responsive instead of proactive. Mm -hmm. You have wonderful folks on this panel that are doing excellent research and uh, progressive policy making with ASR or GRID or DSAL, whatever it may be. So we're on the right path. Uh, in terms of surface groundwater, you know, that's a conversation that we're going to need to continue to have. And speaking of interconnectivity, we share a lot of our water resources with other states and even another another nation, of course, which is Mexico. And Representative Larson, you've done some work in terms of transboundary uh, water management or cooperation, have you not? We did. Uh, with Senator Perry's help in the Senate, we passed the Southwestern States Water Council. If you look at the seven states west of us uh, and the 10 tribal councils that govern the water, they've been working together for 25 years. They have interstate uh, transport of water. They build projects collectively. And uh, the last time a governor and the legislature worked directly with Oklahoma on developing their water resource was in the 1930s when we built this lake called Texoma. Uh, the same thing uh, the last time that a governor or the legislature worked with the folks in Louisiana was in the 1950s and we built Toledo Bend. And so there's a lot of opportunity for us to go into those other states, uh, especially Oklahoma and the southeastern part of Oklahoma uh, they've got a lot of water they're not utilizing, uh, work with the tribal councils as well, and try to develop some kind of, of, of agreement to move some of that water into the Metroplex area you know, for, for sustainability. The same for Louisiana and the same for the folks in Arkansas. Arkansas, for the first time uh, in their history, they passed the water plan uh, two years ago. And if you look at that water plan, uh, there is some... Uh, preponderance of moving water off the Sulphur River. Well, that water flows into Texas uh, without an, any impediments, and uh, if they start diverting that water, it'll have an impact in, in the uh, northern part of our state. So we've got to create a dialogue. It's interesting uh, that we've had leadership travel all over the world, and our most, the, the most natural partners on developing the economic cluster other states that are contiguous to us, and with Representative Lucio, working with folks in Mexico, uh, work with the folks in Kanawa and develop uh, some kind of solution as far as the releases on the Rio Grande on a timely basis. I think it was, it was uh, very important for the governor to go down and start talking with the folks in Mexico. It's been 17 years since the governor flew into Mexico City and started talking to them about a lot of issues, but the water issue uh, is, is important for the folks down in the Rio Grande. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity there that is around us, and it's, it's obviously we couldn't see it for whatever reason, the leadership. And I look forward to working with Senator Perry and, and developing a dialogue with each of the states that are contiguous to us, along with folks in Mexico. Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, two microphones, and at this point in time, I would ask the people in the audience if you have questions for the panel, please... Uh, Please uh, state your question clearly. I'll try to repeat it for the audience, and, uh, and, and, and uh, we'll open it up for discussion. Yes, sir. Scott, one of the things that's been common in the discussion so far has been uh, sort of an all, of, all of the above strategies. We can't just rely on one or two or three. Um, I have something in the recesses of my memory that I'll throw out. I can't evaluate the technical merits of it. I'm not an engineer. but. In the 1960s, uh, there was a proposal to build a nuclear power plant off the coast of Southern California, very close inshore, and have a desalinization plant next to it to use the waste heat uh, cooling water uh, to assist in the, in the desalination, uh, rather than having to use you know, new fuel to do that. Um, I'll just throw that out. I, I have no idea whether anybody else has, that project failed for financial reasons, I, I can't remember the reason why it, it didn't go forward. Uh, but I'll just throw that out as something, uh, whether anybody has ever heard of anything remotely like that. 
Well, steam is used, obviously, uh, right now for desalination. It's been used in World War II. Our warships used it uh, uh, to uh, desal the water uh, for the troops. And uh, the concept uh, is being looked at uh, right now and utilized in the oil field. Uh, they're, they're using, as far as the nuclear plant, I don't think any in the foreseeable future can be built in Texas. But we'll, we will use that technology in some way. Yes, Representative Lucio. You know, being on the coast right now, there's a lot of attention being paid to desal. So over the last five, six, seven years, people have come to me with all sorts of innovative ideas to put uh, some type of wind slash desal platform that is generating wind energy and also doing some desal out in the Gulf and moving that towards the shore. But ultimately, uh, funding is a big issue because that, you know, to, to do that, would be so much more expensive at this current time than just getting water out of the Rio Grande uh, or doing some um, slightly saline brackish desalination. And there has not been any grant or you know, incentive funding from the state and very little from the federal government to get a project like that off the ground. But something that innovative, it is gonna take some type of investment uh, in, in the form of grant dollars in order to get that technology moving. You know, and, and that's, that's tough. We have a lean state uh, in terms of our budget. I support that. I'm not for spending money frivolously. Um, but we have to determine whether or not that's an investment we want to make. One other, one other interesting point about that is, you know, the state does have a water plan that looks out 50 years, thinks about population. You know, it's the summation of a bunch of regional plans, but we've, we've at least had a process uh, designed to think about water. We've got no uh, similar plan for energy. Uh, and so it is interesting to me that those two incredibly important resources that have to grow simultaneously to support the population, on the one hand, we've done some planning. On the other hand, I, I guess we're just crossing our fingers and hoping it works out. Now I'm going to expose my age. You, it, it's interesting that I think probably the first industrial-sized desalination plant in the world was uh, built in Freeport, Texas, and turned mm -hmm. on from the Oval Office by John F. Kennedy in the 1960s, <laughs> early 60s. Yes, ma'am. Um, Laura, you mentioned 70% of the water used in the state is agriculture. Can you break that down between plant-based, producing animals, and producing plants? And regarding bipartisanship, when you have private ownership of water, private landowners, presumably this is gonna be a large part of ag, ultimately, what kind of conflict, we already have conflicts, but it seems like the restructuring of Texas economy is, is definitely going to happen. And how are you going to reconcile ownership of water, means of production, and also making sure people who live in the state have water to drink? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? That's, that's the whole enchilada right there. Um, I don't have the breakdown percentages, although if you go to the, uh, the Texas website, Sid Miller's website has that all broken down. So, but I will tell you this, agriculture is one of the largest economies that we have in the state. It will do us no good to pit cities against agriculture, against uh, energy and industry. That is, that is exactly the wrong way to handle the water conversation. I think it's always smart to start with those things that nobody's fighting about, which is water losses. And I think worldwide and in Texas, we can always make headway on, on how to more efficiently grow food, including plants and animals. And so, I always think that's the place to start. Yeah, I, I'm looking around the room, and everybody's clothed today, thank goodness. And uh, <laughs> I think most people are, look like they're eating pretty well. And I'm sure that most people drove a vehicle to get here at some capacity this week. All of that stuff comes from West Texas, west of I-35, to the best. <coughs> budget items the state has, oil and gas, and agricultural exports. And so any discussion has to consider that dynamic where we become more and more dependent on people that may not have the best interest of this state or this country. So it will always be an integral part. I do agree. You start with where we're at and the loss issues. We will be able to work through it. You know, the good thing about water, there's about three big things this state's got to work on. Water, uh, we say it's number one, number two healthcare, indigent, nursing home, all of those issues that consumer budget dollars. And third is public education diversion, dispersion of, of the dollars. Not necessarily the amount, but as we're how we do it. 
We can fix the top two today if we choose to make those a priority in this state. But uh, you will always have that element of production and producers in ag. And in my area, we're producing because of just seed technology, cotton at two and a half, five acres a bale, depending on a little bit of the moisture, compared to what we were just by seed technology with a whole lot less water. So we consistently have research every day that improves our output on less water and we'll continue to have those initiatives. Dr. Jepson, do you have any uh, comments on that question? Well, I guess I was just reflecting on the larger conversation, and it's about water and energy. Well, there is this nexus between the water sector and the energy sector. They're not separate. Um, Desal is one example. But even the grid that um, we were talking about previously, the amount of energy required to move and convey so much water, then also it, looking back at how energy is produced requires water. And so I think. Um, in the, in the medium term, it may be um, of use for us to think about the ways in which those sectors are actually connected and understand them more holistically than separately. And, and that's perhaps will lead us to solutions or uh, from a policy standpoint or even an investment standpoint in technology on how to move forward on both fronts together because of the intricate way in which they're. <laughs> <laughs> Energy. Sorry, where are my sunglasses? <laughs> Uh, they're interconnected. And wow. I think that may be the next okay. challenge. It's not even a, a, an energy plan. It's what's the water energy plan, right? right? The nexus. I agree. And I think that's, that's a, an exciting time. place. But it gets to this issue of desal. It gets to the issue of, of the grid. Is it, is it viable um, in order to move water? How much water are we spending on the, and we require for the energy to move the water? I mean, we don't have those answers. There's many questions that still require analysis. So. Um, it's more me sitting here reflecting on the larger issues as not being the politician. <laughs> um, just the bigger picture is, this, is the connection between the two. So I wonder if it was the discussion of energy that caused the lights <laughs> to come on. <laughs> yes, sir. I've been a mud board director since the 80s, and we have uh, two problems. Number one, aging infrastructure, where actually you're not leaking from the, the part of that to your house, but the main leakage. Second thing is, uh, I think that we looked into using non-portable water, but it's an effort fact. I think any new muds that are, that are formed should put in non-portable water in the system before the, the uh, development is finished. And that way, then when you have waste water, you can put it in the non-portable water to water your parks and, and, and oil flow without uh, using and as, yes, as we go through this SWIFT funding, and just by the way, the first batch was just let, and the estimated savings to the municipalities and those users that had their projects approved, about $106 million in interest because of state credit ratings. Additionally, I was told last night, did not know this, every project that applied, that followed through with the process was granted something. So it shows a good faith effort on the state's part to do that. But as part of that SWIFT project, we need as a legislature to reinforce, you should have a drought stage plan that says, if you're out of drought, maybe you still need to water your yard three times a week. So through appropriations and some of that funding and some of those decision processes, we need to implement those very issues. Affluent and reuse is going to become a major part, and there were several cities that applied for that, and that's the easiest, that's the low-hanging fruit and we needed to have that as part of our state initiative as we go through that if you're going to have state dollars or be part of a state plan those are some things we're going to require maybe prioritizing not as the priority but in that priority making a city that doesn't versus a city that would would get a different point if you will so we're going to have some of those discussions with the water board. i think that's an awesome point because a worst case scenario would be that a city goes out and identifies a new water supply and then relaxes its mm -hmm. uh, conservation ordinances. That is the worst mm -hmm. case scenario. You know, just to tell you how com complex conservation is, I was reading, I think maybe the Tribune uh, may have had a link to it, but in California they have so many co uh, conservation measures in place that not as much wastewater is flowing, flowing through their sewage uh, pipes, and so they have this solid mm -hmm. waste buildup that's, that's creating these breaks in their pipes. So all this effort to save water is actually costing their system some money, additional money, interesting. Uh, in infrastructure. That's how complex it's, it's the balance. And, and, and I think the recurring theme here is it's going to take money. We have shorted 
or we have cheated, if you will, over the years of having tap water. That water flows uphill to money, doesn't it? Free. <laughs> and so, so much waste. those communities with low tax base, declining economies that don't have a, a way to tax that facility are going to be the challenge of the future because we can fix it if it's a priority because we have the natural resources and the financial resources, but our, those are communities that do not have that. That's going to be the challenge we face. Yes. I'm going to try and keep my question as general as I can. <laughs> um, it's in regards to off-channel reservoirs and how that impacts individual landowners, i.e. the loss of their land to provide the drinking water for populations in another county. Who would like to tackle that one? <laughs> well, I, I think you know, it's just LCRA, <laughs> they embarked on building an off-channel reservoir because we were losing a lot of water, especially when we were talking about excess flows. You look at all the water that resonated from the Austin area during the rains this spring. Instead of flowing it all the way to the coast, we're going to be able to divert some of that water once that off-channel reservoir. That's part of the, the, state's, uh, the state's role is to develop projects that we can use in multiple regions and we need to, the cheapest water we can get uh, outside of conservation is water that we're losing to the coastline in excess flows. So, you know, the, the idea of, of the off-channel reservoirs, I'd also, and it wouldn't encumber any, anybody's land, is to put pipes in those rivers, pull it up and store it underground. They're doing that in the Columbia River. They're doing it in rivers off of Oregon. They're doing it in rivers out of California, Florida, South Carolina. We, we're not doing that. And that's what the beauty of ASRs are. You're not flooding anybody's property. You're storing the water and, and, and not having the evaporative effect. I think the larger point that the, the questioner was making, though, reminded me of something that's been a recurring uh, theme in this conversation this morning, and that is that we have now more uh, members of the legislature from Houston Galveston area than the entire state west of I-35. And I, and I think this water issue, one of the things that is disturbing me about it is that it's kind of like big dogs eat first, that we've, you know, we tend to, uh, because the economic and political power has now focused in the urban areas, then there's a lot of impact in the rural areas that, uh, you know, we, we need to be big enough to, to, to work through this transition with, with people that, 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 are, that don't have the economic and political power that they once had. Well, we're also our worst enemy, though. The reason Houston got a majority of that lion's share of the first amount of SWIFT funding, and I'm a South Texas Valley guy, is they submitted one application that, that was regionally based. So they got all their stakeholders together, they got in a room and said, we're going to submit one application and we're going to solve as many problems as we can. In my area, it's very hard to get, you know, cities five miles from one another to do that. Uh, so, you know, a lot of infighting uh, south of San Antonio and west of I-35, like you say, because traditionally that has been the way that they've interacted. Uh, those large cities, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex, Houston area, they've learned that, look, you know, there are power in numbers and uh, they start they start to get on the same page. And I think that if West Texas or South Texas yeah. wants a seat at that table, we got to think regionally as well. Yeah. And, and I think we will have regional. And I think that one of the shortfalls in the financing model through the SWIFT was is we didn't establish some kind of statutory framework where regionally they can finance the project. For instance, if I'm in Tahoka, Texas, my bond rating doesn't even qualify me for the SWIFT funding because I can't get there. But maybe if I had Tahoka Partners. all those partners that regionally the finance system is going to have to be tweaked to allow bonding companies to be able to bond municipal lease and the other. But to the lady's question, plain and simple, law is private property rights get compensated. So if they take your property for that, you should be compensated fairly for it. So as we go through this, I have to have an environment that guarantees in the event your property is imminent domain or whatever, which is the current law and the law of the land in Texas you're compensated fairly for it. Does that mitigate the, 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 the loss, if you will, of the emotional attachment to it? But you have to be compensated and that private property right has to be preserved. And then regionally, we have to band together and do a better job of municipalities for funding and projects to, to make it more connected, more collaborative. 
Thank you for your question, ma'am. I believe we have one more. Gentlemen, uh, time for one more question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it hasn't escaped the notice of people that the two states uh, that have a particular problem with water on the two largest states in the United States. Uh, that's not escaped the notice, I, I know, of a lot of inventors. And there's some technologies out there that I know every person on this panel would like to know about. Those people don't know where to go. They don't know how to access government. And uh, let me ask you something. Let me give you an example. Uh, you, you have gone to Texas. Um, I say you advise me. Uh, you've got a, 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 a lot of water that is brackish. It's not ocean water. It's not water with 35 to 40,000 BPM. This is 2,500 to 3,000 BPM. Uh, excuse me for interrupting you, sir, but do, do you have a question? May I have a question? Yes. The question would be, uh, where can these people access the, the group? That, that we're addressing right now. Where do we go? I think, I think one, and, and I, we don't support vendor initiatives, so we, we're always cognizant we're, we're of the fact that there's a, there's a better way to build a mousetrap on every issue we face every day. So I would say that your engagement needs to be at the testimony level and committee, that if you want to come and share an idea, and through that process, if you go through the state bidding process or those access, but you need to access the water board in those regional planning meetings and start talking on your local level and bringing those ideas and commercially bring them up to the commercial system because we can't pick a vendor's idea as the state's idea. It's, it's a free market, and you've got to access that market. Well, all they want to do is share that information. Sure. That's what they want to do. Right. They know they can't There are plenty of water engineering opportunities out there for you to take your idea to them and possibly have it implemented in those designs. So just find out who's in that infrastructure area and go and visit and start talking. Thank you, sir. Last question. Well, I think you asked the question that I was going to ask, and what I did as an inventor was pretty passionate on dealing with water is I ended up going to California. There is an entity that has been formed in Texas called Accelerate H2O, which is set up for the purpose of proving the concept of inventions related to water and bringing innovative technology to the marketplace. Accelerate H2O. This is an awesome panel. Help me thank them.